People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. And in this uncertain world we are living in, what with the global COVID pandemic and global warming, to name a few of the existential crises we seem to be facing, it's often said that the next great war will be fought over water. Now, somebody who spent much of his professional life considering this most valuable of resources is UCT's Dr. Kevin Winter. Senior Lecturer in Environmental and Geographical Sciences, Dr. Winter is also Lead Researcher at UCT's Future Water Institute and is widely published on urban water management. He sprang to public prominence in the approach to the near-calamitous Day Zero a couple of years ago when Cape Town almost became the first major city in the world to run out of drinking water. Dr. Kevin Winter is my guest on People of Note this week. Dr. Winter, welcome. It's nice to have you here. Thank you very much. And what a topic we've got to discuss. Yes, indeed. And thank you very much for the invitation. Um, Oh, no. I look forward to a a splendid conversation over the next hour. (laughs) It's all about water. And just to begin, this day zero, which affected so many people in so many ways, how close were we as a city to running out of water? And was it really as dire as suggested at the time, or was there just a lot of hysteria surrounding it? Well, I think hysteria, if we can use that idea for the moment, began in about January of 2018, when particularly after the mayor, the then mayor at the time, Patricia de Lille, announced to the media that we had about 90 days before we were going to run out of water. And that was a Thursday that she made that announcement. By the weekend, there was barely a bottle of water in the supermarket stores, and people literally (laughs) almost fought over them. And so it was an immediate reaction to something that people fear, and I think with hindsight, as we look back on it, it is the not the way you want to manage crises by putting in real fear or giving public something to fear in that way. And panic does set in very quickly. So uh, on the one side, there was a fair amount of hysteria uh, that was caused, a fair amount of hype. But I also understood at the time that the city was struggling to bring people down to a level uh, that was acceptable within the risks that were about to unfold. Um, in December, we were using about 780 million liters uh, per day across the city. And the model was suggesting we needed to get down to 500 million liters. So the media message and what happened after that mid-January announcement uh, was probably very important because we would have run out of water in 90 days. There were two big uncertainties. The one is whether we could reduce the water as consumers and users of water. And secondly, when it was going to rain. And those two were completely unknown. And the only way you could probably persuade is by bringing these very strong messages uh, and bringing about a behavioral change. Are you saying that the mayor reacted in the right sort of way or was she well informed to do that or did she jump the gun? 
I think that the mayor was well informed. The technical uh, leads on water demand management were feeding her regular information. Mm. The reaction was surprising to some extent. I don't think anyone anticipated that the public would become um, so embracing of the real need and the worry that the whole story brought about from mid-January. I think that looking back, it's difficult with hindsight whether we really uh, should have gone down that route. But I think what did show is that soon after that, the amount of water that was used per day in the city dropped fairly dramatically. And by about mid-February, if memory serves me correct, we were down to a little over 500 milliliters per day. And that was a model that we needed to try and continue until we could see the next bit of rains arriving. So, yeah, it's hard to say uh, when you look back on this. I think it certainly had the desired reaction in terms of the behavior. But I think with hindsight, you don't want to panic uh, mm-hmm. a nation. And there was a lot of finger pointing at the time, actually. You know, could the situation have been avoided is the big question. Yeah, so here's the difficult one, because we were able to see uh, from around about 2015 that the storage levels in the dams were starting to drop. And by the end of 2016, in the start of November, which is what we call the start of our hydrological year, there was only 60% water left in those dams. And now you've got what is effectively six months or Mm. maybe more of waiting until the rains fall. And if you don't get substantial rains and you're sitting at 60% at the start of November, you know there is a crisis on the way. Mm -hmm. And, of course, by the time we got to 2018, the year of the crisis, uh, the dam levels were about 22%. That's that's dangerous. For a city of 4.5 million, uh, you shouldn't get lower than 30. That should be the sort of red line that's uh, anything below that is serious. So the situation was serious. I think one has to acknowledge that. So we use this word, the perfect storm. What were the conditions, in your view, that created this perfect storm, if I can use that phrase? Well, I think it's a good one. A perfect storm is not just about water uh, in mm. South Africa and, and in the management of a city of the size of Cape Town. There are so many other priorities that are driving that perfect storm. And they relate to history, to legacies, to access to water, to access to land, access to services, and so on. Um, so there's there's plenty of other parts of this perfect storm that we have to see water in relation to all of those. But immediately around the water side is a very obvious one in that as we face climate change, we're behoven to only one major water source, and that's in our reservoirs and dams. 94% of the city's water, roughly, all comes from those dams, and it feeds cities outside of Cape Town, and it feeds agricultural areas. So if you've got surface water, and you've got no rain, and you've got high evaporation because temperatures are rising, you've got the perfect storm uh, that immediately triggered uh, the situation that we had called Day Zero. Why is Cape Town such a water-stressed city? That might be a difficult question, but is it because of these reasons that you just mentioned? We're feeding other cities, we're feeding a city of millions of people. That's why we are so water-stressed. So I think our city is uh, water-stressed for uh, climatic reasons, first of all. We've seen um, peaks and troughs of high rainfall and low rainfall. Um, When you look 
back in our 128-year record, you can see these peaks and troughs more or less in a pattern that you could almost model and say every 14 years, for instance, we will have a drought or drier period and then peak rainfalls in between. That pattern is increasingly disrupted and the period between uh, droughts is shorter and the drought period is longer. So what we've just been through right now is a five-year drought uh, rather than a two- to three-year drought or low rainfall during those times. So that's one of the obvious ones. We are behoven to the environment, and mm. as climate changes, that's going to put us more and more into a water stress position. Yeah, yeah. So uh, water stress is, is about the environment, about the elements there. But also we're a city that's expanding rapidly. Uh, this is a city that is um, shifted, almost doubled in the course of the last two decades. Uh, we're now at about 4.5 million estimated. And we've got a growing middle income group as well who are uh, using water more productively and, and supporting their lifestyles and lifestyle choices. So there's another part of the city and the city is urbanizing very fast. So all of those combinations make up the perfect storm and add the whole stress to it. And stress is measured by the amount of water that you're able to draw from a catchment system. And if you overdraw that system, take too much of it, uh, you're certainly going to be increasingly stressed. Dr. Kevin Winter is my guest, and I'm intrigued by your choice of music, (laughs) Kevin. For example, Handel's Water Music, I suppose we couldn't resist that but there's a story here isn't there well here's a good one to start off with and uh, anyone who's I'm sure most of your listeners have uh, listened to the full uh, all three suites of Handel's water music it's a it's an amazing story actually because it was written um, by Handel uh, for King George essentially Mm. who uh, floated on a barge uh, up the Thames River and the report goes back to uh, the 7th of July 1717 uh, I remember all the sevens, so that's um, that's why the date's in the top of my head here. But he put a, a, a an orchestra on the on the barge, uh, and he had a whole lot of other aristocrats in the boat ahead, and they were floated from Whitehall uh, to um, to Chelsea. It's a distance of about five kilometres. And I'm told that they didn't row. They literally just floated on the tide. And they they embarked on this journey somewhere around about 8 o'clock, obviously, when the tide was um, still coming in, and then floated back somewhere around about 11 o'clock at night. But the, but the water music is, is essentially, it's a lovely, soothing music. And I sometimes call it the doctor's surgery music. Oh, yes, Because yes. it's so soothing in the background. <laughs> and, and and the horns and the and the piece I'd love you to play is, is suite number two uh, and the second movement of that because it brings out the horns beautifully and it's a it's a very soothing uh, piece as well i'm sure your listeners know that very well
from the Water Music Suite number two by Handel. And it was the choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Dr. Kevin Winter, Senior Lecturer in Environmental and Geographical Sciences at the University of Cape Town. We're talking about water. We spoke a lot, Kevin, about the Day Zero scenario. I mean, all of us have been made incredibly aware of water and water situations. I remember the water warriors going to houses and you weren't allowed... You have to be careful topping up your whiskey, for example. But what, what now? Well, I think the city has done a good job so far in, first of all, putting together a very important document called the uh, Cape Town's Urban Water Strategy. It's a means of trying to be committed to at least five points. And all of those five points will be too boring for your listeners. But essentially what is exciting is that the city has a plan now and is slowly starting to implement them. Two of those plans, just briefly, one is to diversify the supply of water. And I spoke about earlier on how vulnerable we were to relying only on reservoirs. Mm. But secondly is a very important um, contribution to how the city might look in the future. And it's what they call a water resilient and later a water sensitive city. And these are the buzzwords that um, many other countries are now working with, particularly the Australians. We're certainly looking over our shoulders to what they're doing. in cities like Melbourne and and Brisbane, for instance. And it showcases water to one to some extent. Um, So it it tries to raise the profile of water in the city. Uh, It tries to look at issues of social justice and fairness and access to water. So that's a very important component to it. And it's also dealing with the contamination of our waterways and to try to repurpose water. And in a nutshell, the water-sensitive city's idea is how to create uh, the circularity within the water system. So a lot of our water runs off from our rivers and canals and so on into the sea. And there are times when that's a valuable water resource that we're not using. So how do we, for instance, take that water and use that stormwater, treat it and use it for other purposes, and maybe even use that water to inject into the ground so that it recharges our aquifers and we've got a natural resource sitting there waiting to be reused for other purposes. I'm just 
giving you two very simple yeah, examples, yeah, yeah. but it's a way to try and showcase water and to be much more sensitive and resilient to the kind of crises that we're going to face as a city. There's no doubt that this drought is going to happen again, and we need to anticipate that and to be much more ready for it than we were in 2017, 2018 in particular. One of the other big buzzwords at the time was desalination. I mean, that's, I get the impression, is not that practical. It's terribly expensive. Or what are your thoughts on desalination? So far, the city has put in and tested three sites, and some of them weren't as effective as I think the city had hoped. And they were demonstration sites, largely, and they demonstrated the city's ability to procure something at speed and to implement that fairly quickly. And they did operate, uh, and they've been able to give us between sometimes 7 and 10 million liters of water per day. But in the long term, uh, and by the way, I think, Taking that project on, it's an expensive one, but it's a very useful learning curve. And it's better that we have gone through that learning curve rather than people saying, well, that is a waste of time and you didn't do enough. It's better for us to actually have learned those lessons and now start to look towards a much larger scale, more efficient, more energy efficient desalination plant in the future. And the city is looking to that, but it will probably only be implemented somewhere around about in 2032. Oh, gosh, as long as that, 10, 11 years away. Sure. That's probably quite good because we're actually watching other cities and seeing what they're doing rather than trying to reinvent the wheel or buy into old technologies. So for the moment, one's sort of fingers crossed uh, Mm. and having to manage the water uh, really effectively over the next while before that happens. It's it's possible it might be implemented earlier if the crisis hits us earlier. But I think we should be spared as a city the cost and the energy costs involved in running desalination and the pollution costs that are associated with desalination. That technology is changing rapidly, and I think it will be a very different technology uh, in eight, ten years' time. And the question of sewerage, treating sewerage water and turning it into drinking water? Well, there is a project already in place to do that. The city is working at their Fora wastewater treatment plant in which they're blending treated water into uh, the the drinking water. That'll take some time before that laboratory is put together, but it could be one of the smartest laboratories around to be able to do that in time. <laughs> Why? And, and it's partly because the technology is fascinating, the oh. science that goes behind that technology, the way they are both using both chemicals and technology to treat that water, but also biological means as well uh, to treat that water and to test the water. So new biomarkers are emerging, biomarkers essentially how we detect contaminants in the water. So fish is a good example of a biomarker and enabling these kinds of broader spectrum of indicators to be available becomes a really useful way to test the water, not just simply, it's not only about chemistry any longer, it's about the microbiology of that water, it's about emerging contaminants that are found in that water and and how we deal with those. So there is a very exciting investment taking place and that project is already started. We've been talking to some of the engineers quite a bit about the progress of that project and it looks very good. And then we have to get around the psychological impact of thinking that we're drinking sewage water. 
I'm pleased you mentioned that because that will be on everyone's lips, won't yes, it? Uh, yeah, that yeah. Uh, the preparedness to drink water that has been drunk before. And of course, you know, if you look at that logically, that's what nature does. It yes, recycles exactly. water all around. Yes. You and I are drinking, as often has been said, you know, the, we drink in the water that the dinosaurs drank, for instance, mm. and nature purifies that water. The difficulty, of course, is that as human beings, we're making such an impact on the quality of that water that it now creates a lot of differences here. And I think we still got to get through that whole perception and the psychological uh, concept of drinking water that's been drunk before. Okay, Kevin, we're going to take another music break now. Moon River, as our water theme continues, why have you chosen this? Well, Moon River is interesting for a number of reasons, partly because I love the music and it's, it's a beautiful something, song, yes. something that I play on the piano regularly. Oh, yes, uh, you're a musician as well. I mustn't forget well, that. Well, I certainly we'll tinker around on, on the <laughs> piano, and uh, that's certainly one that I, I certainly do enjoy. It's not a love story of a, a relationship between two people. It's actually a relationship between the person and the person who wrote the music is Johnny Mercer. And uh, it's meant to be a relationship with the person and the river. So it's two people drifting along through and down the river. Mm. Um, and what's also interesting about the river is that the river was called the Back River, which is from the state of Georgia, a little town called Savannah. And Johnny Mercer lived on the river, and the river's name, post that song, was called Moon River. And what I like about that, of course, is that we're beginning to see the importance of rivers and how we can find ways to uh, raise the level of public awareness about the rivers, the quality of those rivers, and how they psychologically create really useful social spaces, recreational spaces within a city.
That beautiful song, Moon River, I haven't heard that for ages. And another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Dr. Kevin Winter. We're talking about water. And, uh, Kevin, we've spoken about desalinization. We've spoken about sewerage being changed into drinking water. Purification is clearly the buzzword, isn't it, really? I think I'm much more worried about water quality now than I am about water supply. Water supply technically can be managed it also has a behavioral component which is much more difficult but nevertheless it can be managed and there are ways of doing that but i think the water quality is where the really big challenges lie they lie because uh, it's difficult to monitor it's difficult to treat that water and in a lot of cases that water is running off our streets uh, running in sewage lines that are have popped their lids as we often say and finding their way into our canals and rivers and wetlands and so forth and there's a real danger around the city and right across the country as well we have about 70% of our rivers across this country are in a state where probably we will never be able to rehabilitate them back to a baseline where the aquatic system and the ecological systems and service are able to operate as they did prior to uh, development occurring around them. So that's serious, and how to treat that water is a major issue. And this is one of the reasons why we started the Peninsula Paddle in 2010, uh, four of us. Uh, <laughs> yes, were a little bit I wanted camp. to ask you about that, yeah. Four of us were sort of taking this idea of an adventure, of seeing whether we could cross uh, the peninsula from Musenberg through to Mullerton. And we did that in 2010, um, Mavericks. Just using rivers. Just using the canals. And canals. there's only one little point where we actually got out of our canoes and dragged them over to where we got back into the water. Uh, those who know where the Kenilworth Racecourse is in Cape Town, that is a, a minor watershed. And it took us, I think, something like almost 12 hours to do that, slogging our way through a river water quality that is very poor with lots of weed and obstructions all the way through. And we've every year we've run this peninsula paddle and it's been just wonderful to see how slowly these rivers have improved with increasing attention to them. Started off with four and now we've been restricting people to under a hundred because we've been joined by <laughs> people who believe that this is one way to bring attention to our waterways and to the water quality of those waterways. And over the years, we've seen lots of initiatives from the city side, uh, from different community-based organizations getting involved in cleaning the rivers and holding that attention more and more. Uh, and probably one of the most dramatic ones I did with about 80 uh, largely young people from all across Cape Town. Kailicha Canoe Club joined me. I have such good relations with them, and they're doing something wonderful in Kailicha in their wetlands. And what they're doing was the same story that we're trying to pull together within our canals, and it was wonderful to have their experience. And on that day, in fact, in that week just before the paddle, uh, we had this tragic murder of one of our students at UCT, Yuneni, who uh, was was killed by a post office uh, worker. And, and I remember on that Wednesday being with literally thousands of students and staff on the steps at UCT in the plaza and listening to some fiery speeches and calling us to a new awareness and a heightened awareness of gender-based violence. 
And when we started the paddle on that Sunday, I was wearing a black armband with my UCT T-shirt on, and I briefly explained uh, why I was wearing it and my absolute empathy for family and friends and, and for the whole UCT community. We were absolutely burnt by that. It was a, a reaction which uh, reverberated right through our community. And when we got to um, the Black River, uh, having traversed our way all the way through these different canals, we came to this statuette, this figurine that sits in the Black River in the Maitland area. It's a beautiful statue sitting on a floating pond. It's called the Lady of Hope, and she's holding a baby in her arms. And we got together, uh, brought all the canoes. We clung on to that float for a while and onto each other and just were silent for probably at least a minute and just reflected on gender-based violence in amongst the adventure that we were doing to think about uh, other very important uh, issues that are going on around us. A very poignant moment. Mm, I'm sure. That statue, wasn't there a story about it sort of appeared and no one knew who put it there? Is that the one you're talking about? Correct. Amidst all the flamingos and things. It stands... On a boat, actually, and no one knew how it got there or when it went away because it goes occasionally and comes back, doesn't it? Sure, it does. And there is an art school uh, in the northern suburbs, and they've been doing this for a number of years and replacing the statue. I think it's less of an open secret in, in now, but um, very valuable to see mm. how art can bring together, uh, in our case, the emotions uh, and the lady of hope. Yes. And perhaps the reason why I mentioned how the Back River might have been changed, and maybe I could say the Black River was changed to a river of hope. Yes, gosh, because that river, um, I was going to ask you, I interviewed somebody on this very program some time ago about the friends of the Lisbeck River system and all that. And you're part of that as well, aren't you? Am I right in saying that? Yes, I have been part of uh, the Friends of Lisbeck uh, on their executive committee for, well, since 1996, in fact, and mm-hmm. led it at various stages. Now what I do is tend to bring a lot of my research and students uh, to assist with that project and also still involved in in raising funds and we have an, an amazing organization that for 30 years almost has been cleaning that river and creating a wonderful environment uh, it's got lots of challenges uh, mm, lots sure. of pollution coming down it but it's a model which brings private and public investment in uh, caring for a river and that's a model which is so hard to get right uh, and I've always believed if we couldn't get that model right on the Lisbeck River given its site and situation and surroundings we'd struggle anywhere else and I'm pleased to say that you very seldom see community based organizations made up of volunteers and people in in various walks of life who just do a little bit in order to create a difference Mm. and I think that's the message probably from working within that uh, organization that as Margaret Mead says you know the one thing you can rely on is citizens who are able to do just a small bit uh, of work and are able to make a difference and that's the only thing you can rely on is citizens getting involved making a difference just before we take our next piece of music just very briefly um, you mentioned rivers and how important they are in cities and here in South Africa we don't really have those magnificent rivers that flow through the cities do we and it's such a pity because from an entertainment point of view from water supply when you think of the Thames and the Elbe and the Rhine and the, all those and the Seine it's, it's very sad that we don't have big rivers in our cities I agree. What is that? I mean, good heavens. I agree. You know, (laughs) the problem is certainly that uh, the rivers reach a stage where they're either, they're a threat. Mm. So they either flood 
or they are polluted and businesses turn their backs on them. So they build high walls and frame the river in that particular way. And wouldn't it be just great if we had to find ways to at least showcase some elements of that? Uh, and I'm working with a city's program at the moment called Livable Urban Waterways. How do we showcase water in small sections to create a vision for what could happen if we actually use those rivers as a much more integral factor in our recreation, in business, in property values, and in how we overall value river systems? Okay, I see, Kevin, your next piece of music, famous piece, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, well selected at this point. And there's a story here, isn't there? There is indeed. And I was in Germany in about 1993 with a Rotary International study group. And we took some time off to go to the Munich Stadium where part of the hall was set aside to listen to Paul Simon. And Paul Simon, I don't know whether he was even allowed to perform in South Africa at that time. And I stood within about three meters uh, from the stage and it was just such a moving occasion. And I was aware of what he was doing at that stage uh, with Ladysmith Black Mombasa and uh, with um, Joseph Shabalala and incredible music. And I'd love to have played more of that because (laughs) that's also dramatic and and, uh, such a wonderful combination of Paul Simon's music. But Simon and Garfunkel have always really been magic um, musicians to me. They are writers uh, that have a deep sense of understanding of relationships and of introspection as well. And Bridge Over Troubled Waters, I've chosen it because it is, and it follows on from what I've just said, is how do we deal with these problems? What is that bridge over these really troubled waters that is not only about supply, but also about water quality?
song bridge over troubled water simon and garfunkel what a um i don't know a cult tune that actually and one of the choices of my guest on people of note here on fine music radio this week dr kevin winter we've been talking about water and what a vast subject it is kevin and i think people listening will stop and think and i think that what is important that people are aware these days you go into public lavatories and things and you see signs about our valuable resource all as a result of day zero and i think that that's very good even in these dreaded COVID times but one of the things i wanted to fit in before i let you go is a project in francia called the water hub water research called the water hub can you explain what that is because it actually sounds fascinating well, thanks for asking the question. Um, in about uh, 2013, I was with a number of officials, including the Premier at the time, uh, Helen Ziller, and we were examining an old abandoned uh, wastewater treatment plant and considering what you could do with that. The land belongs and the infrastructure belongs to the Stellenbosch municipality. And I got quite excited by that because I thought, here's an opportunity to try and build capacity in research and innovation and to create a demonstration center which showed how we could clean water particularly using nature-based processes and solutions and fit into the whole genre of sustainability science and to demonstrate that uh, and to show how we could treat that water without adding chemicals without adding more energy could we take water, in this case, from an informal settlement and use large-scale biofiltration systems to recover the resources from that water and to use that water productively for multiple purposes, ultimately to try to create jobs in that area? And to and when you're using water productively, first thing that comes to mind is how do we grow food for a hungry population? In the informal settlement, there are about 6,000 people living further upslope of the water hub site. And because of 
poor access to sanitation uh, and and water and no formalized drainage systems that are able to direct water into a sewage system the water comes down the slope and bisects the site so this is an amazing opportunity to try to explore how we could bring about new innovation and new ideas in treating that water so that water, I mean, by sheer coincidence, comes down like that past this site, this, this hub, and now you can direct it, you can harness it through the system. Is that what you're saying of this water hub? Correct. So these are biological filters which enable us to understand microbial systems where a lot of the water cleansing and the bacteria lies. And the water is coming in at E. coli levels, which is the bacteria, it's frequently measured uh, at anything up to 200,000 counts uh, per 100 milliliters. So it's sky high, it's off the charts. Um, The nutrient levels are sky high as well. If you had to capture that water and put it into a small pond and leave it there for a few days, you could just about walk across that water because algae uh, would form across it and it would form a a solid uh, cake on the surface. And so what we're doing is taking small portions of that water and using the depths of these biological filters, and there are six of them, and they're filled with various natural resources, uh, large stones, peach pips, and small stones. Some of them are covered in plants, uh, reeds, and so on. And all of that uh, creates a treatment train, and we're able to process about 100,000 liters of water every five to seven days. And in a water-scarce country, a water-stressed region, that's what we should be looking for, how to close this loop on the water cycle and reuse that water productively. And, of course, what we've done over the last two or three years in gathering this data, and it's a slow process, uh, before we can really develop what I believe is the most important agenda, and that is to create the jobs and to create a more circular economy between the water hub, bringing waste into uh, the site so that we can, as in organic waste from the town of Franschuk, and to turn that waste into compost and into energy so that we can actually improve the soil and regenerate the soil in that area. So it's a lovely story about bringing these things together. Absolutely. And so you, you're saying that the, the, the waste that, that you can walk on, you're actually using that as well and turning it into um, fossils and um, fertilizer. So the water uh, is cleaned. Um, we're removing almost 100% of the bacteria in that water, Gosh. almost 90% of the nutrients in that water. So we've just got enough to be able to irrigate with a low level of liquid fertilizer on these plants. And the success rate is remarkable. And I'm not a farmer, but I, I've now learned if I can take a seed of lettuce for instance which is relatively easy to grow within eight to ten weeks um, and I can do this four times a year I can grow lettuce and so a valuable food product which comes out of just treating and extracting the resource levels that we need so that's part of the end point and the part of the exciting part of the project Uh, and we're now at stage of just trying to do a risk assessment which says uh, is this safe are there contaminants uh, that are coming through into both the soil and into the actual vegetables that are safe to eat and that's 
part of the next part of the the program. And if you invite me in a year or two's time, hopefully I've got something more to say. <laughs> yes, because I was going to say, where does this water go once it's been treated? Where does it go? Where do you send it? So a small portion of that water is what we use for irrigation yeah. uh, on the site, but the rest we turn back into what eventually becomes the Franschuk River and then into the Berg River. Okay. And okay. and we're only taking a small portion of it, so one has to upscale this even more to be able to almost divert the whole of the river that has been contaminated in this way uh, before we place it back into the into the Franschuk. And I should add one more thing because it seems illogical that you're working downstream and and capturing all the problems. Yes. Uh, you should be working upstream, be, yeah. and of course that's where the big challenge lies. How do we get projects now uh, running that are able to improve the whole uh, river corridor and then start to meet some of the other very important uh, needs of people living in that in that informal settlement. You know what? We're going to stop our conversation there about <laughs> water. But I just want to end having listened to you and your fascinating story, uh, Dr. Kevin. What made you so passionate about water? What made you choose this career? Yes, I did a PhD in water, so I clearly am committed to the idea <laughs> of, of like water it, and, and how we manage water. I grew up in a family, first of all, that was uh, a sailing family. I've raced in, in small dinghy regattas and, and also keelboats later. And, and more recently, I've sailed quite a lot uh, in, in regattas. So water has always attracted me, particularly inland water. And water quality has always been uppermost in our minds because mm. we, we're sailing it. We're sailing on flays like Zikuflay and Sunflay, which have very high pollution levels. And I suppose I've been lucky to escape any infections from that. But it's been in the outdoors, and, and water is energizes me as well. I think it does for everybody, actually. Mm, we does. value water. When yes. you come to water, you sense that this is an incredible energizing force. Mm. And as you watch the flow of that water, and I guess the music has hopefully helped us to engage <laughs> with it as well, uh, it's, it's an incredible part of our human being. And, I, you know, when we think we're 70% of our physical form is made up of water, maybe there's an affinity there which, helps us to sense uh, almost the spiritual and value that we place on water Absolutely. in this And way. what could be more exhilarating than watching a waterfall or a strong flowing river or even a very slow little stream? There's the sound of water as well. And then there's the sea, but that's another story. Okay, your last piece, Kevin, before I let you go. Well, I think we should go to something a little more contemporary, and that is to Michael Jackson's uh, Heal the World. Uh, it's a fairly old song, but it's a it's a class act, first of all, if you've ever seen and watched him on the stage. But the words are one which brings huge empathy. And, and in a stage where we are with this pandemic and feeling that the world has let us down uh, and we've got a lot of things that we could moan about, the song is about healing the world. It's about considering our children's children. It's about love and it's about empathy. We need to probably be doing more to listen to each other and to empathize with each other rather than, I guess, telling people what to do and thinking that we mavericks and can solve the world's problems. It confirms, I think, again, the statement I made earlier on, uh, quoting uh, Margaret Mead. And if I can just finish off with that final one, which I uh, need to say more as as a, as a quote and Margaret Mead said never doubt that a small group of thoughtful committed citizens can change the world indeed it's the only thing that ever has and Michael Jackson's Heal the World speaks to that 
Thank you, Dr. Kevin Winter, for a really, really fascinating interview. And I'm sure many people are now going to consider water in a completely different light. Thank you, Dr. Kevin. Well, thank you for the chat. I really enjoyed it too. Think about um, the generations and to say we want to make it a better place for our children and our children's children so that they, 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 they know it's a better world for them and think they can make it a better place. There's a place in your heart and I know that it is love brighter than tomorrow and if you really try you'll find there's no need to cry in this place you feel there's no hurt or sorrow there are ways to get there if you care enough for the living make a little space make a better place heal the world
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.